it for the end zone. It's intercepted in the end zone by Diane Gawolaku. Down the near sideline. 30, 35, 40. Right corner, Eli. Pulls, fires, scores from three. Elijah Bryant swishing it from the corner. Rolls it past the defender. Gets into the 18, shoots in. Near post, score! Avery Walker! He's been on the headset for the last quarter century of BYU sports. Now, he's on BYU Radio every week as we go behind the mic with Greg Rubel. Here's your host, the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Hello and good Wednesday evening once again to all of our listeners in Cougar Nation. My name is Greg Grubel and welcome back inside Studio 2 at the BYU Radio Studio Complex inside the BYU Broadcasting Building on the beautiful BYU campus here in Provo, Utah for our 20th episode of Behind the Mic, our weekly hour of Cougar sports conversations with current and former BYU sports and sports media personalities. Great to have you joining us coast-to-coast uh, coast on satellite via BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYU or the BYU Radio app. If you're not listening live, good to have you with us uh, on demand uh, via our Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast feed or on our Behind the Mic show page at BYURadio.org. Go to BYURadio.org to access live and on-demand links for all of the great programming on BYU Radio, including our weekly Dave Rose Coaches Show and the daily episodes of BYU Sports Nation. This week, tonight, on Behind the Mic, we visit with one of the newest members of the BYU football coaching staff, wide receivers coach Fessy Sitake, and a two-time Super Bowl champion and former BYU defensive lineman Chris Hoke. My interview with Chris is tonight's Catching Up with the Cougars segment, sponsored by BYU alumni. But we start tonight's show by welcoming back in the former head coach of the BYU Cougar Hoopsters and the Fresno State Bulldogs, the former LDS Mission President in Indianapolis, and once again, a broadcast analyst on BYU TV. He is, of course, Steve Cleveland. And Coach Cleve, welcome back in Behind the Mic. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. All right, to update us on what uh, you and Kip are up to these days and where you are right now. You know, we're living in uh, Clovis, California. And we've got all three of our kids and nine grandkids here. And uh, it's been really, really good, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of consulting and obviously doing some TV and radio. Uh, I did just get called to be a bishop of the YSA ward. So <laughs> that uh, has brought, it changed my life quite a bit. But it's all good. So as part of your broadcast work, of course, I still see you in town and on Sports Nation. Uh, what are your recent uh, observations of the way this uh, BYU basketball team is playing right now? You know what, I, we just go back to the last game, and, and one of the things that really stands out to me, a game that, uh, I, you know, you have to be a little bit lucky in situations with games like this, but you also have to be really prepared for the moment. And I felt like when they got back into the game, they're down six with 40-some seconds, it didn't look very good. And uh, But the thing that I think was uh, the best about the end of this game was that the timeouts that were called, the coming out of the timeouts, the execution, uh, the double team, the traps, all of the decisions that had been made in that timeout came to fruition and, and gave them an opportunity to win the game. I mean, they missed free throws. They turned the ball over. But I thought the execution out of the timeout on uh, Elijah Bryant's three was just perfect execution. Those are things you practice every day, late game situations. And to see that come about and to see him make the main, still got to make that basket. But Elijah is somebody that stepped up and was in the moment and took advantage of it. So that that was impressive. They, they were fortunate to win that game. 
uh, especially when you consider that they, you know, they shot more free throws, but their turnovers just killed them in that game. But to come through and win a game like that gives the team a lot of confidence in themselves as well as the coaching staff. You know, Steve, every time I go back and watch the final minute of regulation, I see something different. And, and in that final minute, there were two big offensive rebounds. And the one that I really didn't see till I watched it again and again, TJ misses an earlier three, and McKay Cannon gets a, a, gets a finger to a rebound that two Dons kind of have between themselves, and he kind of slaps it in the direction of Yoli. Yoli has the short stick back, and that helped BYU in the comeback. It took little things to make this thing happen. It's always the small little things that make, make a big difference in a game. And yeah, I give USF credit. They put themselves in a position to win that game. They had a young player, and I've forgotten the freshman's name. He had an Sule Boom. Sule yeah, Boom. He played, yeah. played really well, but uh, he made a couple of really critical mistakes late in that game, turning a ball over, and uh, it, it hurt, hurt the team. But they would never have been there without him. And, and those things are going to happen. You learn those lessons. But you're right. There, there's a lot of little things that go into winning a game. But in most situations, when you're down six with 40-some seconds to go, uh, you're probably going to lose that game. But it didn't happen. They never stopped believing. And the coaching staff didn't stop believing. The players didn't. They have a lot of confidence. They've been in close games. They've won games on the road. So they've experienced the nerves and the anticipation of what's next. And they just were calm and, and took care of business. I, I thought TJ, boy, the last three games, he, he has really had a presence with this team. Averaging about, as you know, Greg, you, you know everything about BYU <laughs> analytically and data and everything. But to see him averaging 20 points a game the last three games and see his input uh, has to give everyone hope that uh, this team's capable of some, doing something really special in the tournament. And, of course, Steve, what Dave and, and the staff and the players hope is that the way that BYU won that USF game acts as kind of a springboard to a pretty big weekend coming up. They actually have three straight on the road uh, coming up, but, but the first two this weekend at Pep and at San Diego, a couple of venues that have uh, you know, given BYU some trouble over the years. They have, but I, I just don't believe right now that Pepperdine's in a position to sustain that for 40 minutes. Uh, I think BYU's confidence coming into this game, they know they need momentum going into that tournament. Every, you just take one of these games at a time. Certainly any team is capable of beating anybody on a given night. But I, I like BYU's chances against Pepperdine. Uh, San Diego has struggled a little bit themselves, but that is going to be a really, really tough venue to play in and win there. But certainly they're capable. The game that kind of makes me a little bit nervous, and I, knew they blew, I know they blew out Portland last year, but I've, I've watched the Portland scorers, and they've been in games, and uh, they've got some size. And if they were to get confidence early and, and start making some baskets, uh, they're, they're much improved. Even though they don't have a great record, I still think they're a lot better team this year. They've got size. They have the ability to rebound the ball and protect the rim. Uh, that, that could be a really, really difficult game, especially as you consider that the next game, the last game, is going back home to play Gonzaga, which is everybody's going to be looking forward to. So Pepperdine, I think, is, uh, is a ball game that they go in and win. San Diego, it, it, it's, it's going to be 50-50 game. I mean, I, I think BYU will be no, – I think, I think they'll be predicted to win the game by a slight margin, but it'll be a tough place to play. But the Portland game kind of scares me. And they're gonna, if they, I think if they take care of business against those two, 
Portland won't be a problem, but Portland can sneak up on you. Yeah, they, they, they're a very three-point reliant team, exciting young yes. players. They led for 30 of the 40 minutes in Stockton, almost had that game at Pacific on the weekend, and uh, Tigers had to do well to get that win. Uh, and, and David Stoudemire has done a bang-up job in his second season in Stockton, oh. and the Tigers look good right now. Coach, uh, mid-February on... There's really like nothing like this time of year in sports. I love this time of year in college basketball. What are your maybe your recollections or, or memories or general thoughts about when a team kind of turns that corner into mid-February and we head down the stretch? You know, I, I think, first of all, it's really important, and I know Coach Rose knows this, but this is a team, the time, it's a time when the team, you need to spend more time watching film, uh, fewer minutes in practice, working on late-game situations, special situations, uh, and, and as you get start preparing for the tournament, maybe even a couple of quick hitters, the special sets, things you start using and practicing a little bit, getting a lot of shots up, but not doing anything to take a little bit of their legs away from them. You know, the practices need to be real cerebral. Uh, they need to be actively engaged, shorter practice times so that you have something left. And I, I remember one. I, I, this is a, an NC2A tournament experience, but I, you were there. Our, our first experience playing Cincinnati and the first time that we went to the tournament after winning the conference tournament. Mm-hmm. And, and as a coach, you know, I look back that as a mistake, a late, you know, it's late in the year mistake that we, we went too hard uh, the previous day or two. We were so excited, I think, to be there that we wanted to do everything and have everything be perfect. And what we needed to do is really take a step back, watch the film, get lots of shots in, execute a little bit of late game strategy get to the free throw line, you know, and take an hour of practice and get ready to play. And I look back and I think to myself, uh, that, that was kind of on me. You know, I, I think that, uh, we were prepared. We were probably over-prepared and we didn't have quite the legs we needed to in the second half of that game when the game was tied at half. So I think you really concerned and you want to be really careful with your team when you get late in the year to avoid injury, to avoid fatigue, keep them fresh, watch film, maybe some special quick yeah. hitters prepare that way and it makes a big difference interesting you bring that up the ncaa gives you venue time at the actual game venue in this case it was you know va house arena in san diego but i think we ended up going to a junior college right somewhere in town yeah we did and, we and, did. and it was a pretty heavy day uh for the cougs and then, of course you played uh, coach huggins team the very next day but just getting back to the dance was was such a big deal you mentioned the conference tournament win you 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 come off the win in las vegas and and it uh, you know we keep looking back at that as the last time BYU won a conference tournament and a lot of things have to fall in place to win your your three games in four days or three and three whatever it's going to be and uh, and the WCC's uh, you know been a really tough nut to crack Gonzaga just is so consistent in Las Vegas and St Mary's is right there with them now and so if and when BYU gets back into that winter circle in Las Vegas coach they really they'll they'll really have earned it. No, they will. I mean, you're going to have to – it's going to go through both of those schools. It's kind of unique how this is shaping up, and, and certainly the game against uh, Gonzaga, the, fi- the final game, could, is going to play a big role in seeding and uh, who they'll play. And if BYU were to beat them, then, then certainly they would end up paying because they'd probably lose out on the RPI because – well, they'd lose out because they have one more loss. And I don't think – I do not think St. Mary's is going to lose again. But let's say St. Mary's runs the table – BYU could have a lot to say about who they're going to play in the semis if they are fortunate enough to get there. So it's kind of a unique situation, and uh, you, you could probably give a little bit of clarity. I, I know they're using the RPI as a tiebreaker, and right now St. Mary's, I guess, owns that tiebreaker uh, slightly over the Zags. Slightly, right? yeah. Slightly, by a little bit, by about 8 or 10 right now, yeah. 
Yeah. If it so. ever got, and of course BYU hopes to make it a moot point by beating the Zags, of course, in the in the final game of the regular season, and and you know the Zags got one back on BYU by winning at home, and so hopefully the Cougs turn the tables and and beat the Zags in Provo this year to end the year. It'll be a great environment. It won't be a true senior night, Steve, with no seniors, but it will be the regular season finale in Provo, and I expect a full house and a really charged atmosphere for BYU and Gonzaga that night. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and, and it's a game that uh, you know as we all watched that game up. In, uh, in Washington, we saw how close that game was with two minutes to go. They got right back into the game. And uh, it was a different game than they had had the year before. But I, I know that the coaches and the players know that they can, they can compete and they can beat Gonzaga. I, though I, the impre- it was a very, very impressive win with the Zags over St. Mary's the other night. Mm-hmm. When, when, when Gonzaga shoot, when those guards are shooting the ball like that, they're really, really difficult to beat. They have an inside presence. And uh, Huchamara, uh, I, I tell you what, I, I, I've watched him now four or five times on video and live, and he's a really, really special player. And he's a handful. And uh, he, he's a guy that definitely plays at the next level. So, But I think the key to Gonzaga is whether or not their guards are shooting the ball, making free throws and making threes. When they're doing that, they're hard to beat. Probably will, if, if, that, if they continue to play like that and allowed to play like that, uh, I've, I've said all along, we've talked about this on Sports Nation, you know, this, this, this championship still goes through Gonzaga. I mean, everybody kind of felt like, hey, this is going to happen in St. Mary's year, but you know what? You, you, it still has to happen. And right now, Gonzaga still has the upper hand, and uh, it, it'll probably come down to that, that last game at BYU. Wrapping up our visit with former BYU head hoops coach uh, Steve Cleveland, now, of course, a BYU TV broadcast analyst. And the last thing, Steve, this time around with you, it's about Dave Rose. Uh, you brought Dave Rose in on your very first BYU staff back in 1997. He, of course, uh, followed your footsteps here at BYU. And now here he is at career win number 325 that he picked up on the weekend. That means he's averaged 25-plus wins per season for 13 seasons. So he's won 20 or more in all 13 seasons. And you go to the list of active Division One head coaches with longer streaks than Dave Rose right now of 20-win seasons, you get four guys. You get Mike Krzyzewski, yeah. you get Mark Few, you get Bill Self, you get Roy Williams, and that is it. As you look back on how this thing all began to where Dave is now, what are your thoughts about what Dave has done here at BYU? Well, you know, I, I think the fact that together, we spent a lot of time together. We lived together for a while as we <laughs> came there. We went through a lot of different experiences, and only those that were there intimately can kind of know the challenges that we face. But I think, if anything, the preparation through the experiences that we had together for eight years helped him really better understand what he wanted to do going forward. And the, and the program was, there were players in the program, but there's players in lots of programs. And uh, I think what he did and how he brought that together and took that transition and, and, and it was so smooth. And I think that's the, the continuity of having a coach or an assistant coach and continue to take, there's a lot to be said about that kind of continuity, but he knew what he wanted. He had a vision for what was going to take place and, uh, and and then guys bought into it, and they've done a nice job recruiting. And he, you know, couldn't be happier for Dave and his staff. And obviously, I've got a pretty strong connections to both Dave and Heath. And uh, but it is incredible what he's done. He's he's had a Hall of Fame career. And uh, and I know that uh, I think what I'm most impressed. I mean, all the significant things that he's done is that what Dave has done this past spring and summer, where he made some changes. 
he did some things that he felt would help this group of people be successful, this group of players be successful. And I think that is a mark of an outstanding coach who can make changes and stop and, and you know, look inside and say, you know, what are things I can do better? What What is it that the program needs? Rather than just being status quo, he made some pretty significant changes. And, and it's really played out well, and you can see it. You can visually see that this team is together. You can visually see on the floor as you watch it, even if you don't know anything about basketball, that this group plays hard and competes. And, and so there's been a lot of good things. And so despite all of his success, he, he, he redirected. He took a new direction. He changed directions a little bit. And uh, we've really seen some positive things. And we'll see some positive things in this year. And I think what we'll really see in the, in the coming next year or two with a, all of these players coming back, uh, I, I think you're going to see some opportunities, things that haven't been done in the, in the WCC. So really happy for Dave. It's incredible all that he's done. And he, he would be first to admit that it takes more than just one guy. I mean, it, uh, he's had great staffs. He's had unbelievable support from the community, from the administration. And all of that goes hand in hand to have that continuity and that long-term success. Well, Steve, it was a privilege of mine to uh, to observe you and Dave and Heath on the ground floor of this effort back in 1997 uh, and to be uh, an associate of yours, a friend of yours for now 20-plus years. Uh, it's always good chatting with you, always good to see you. Uh, you've been great to work with me on the air over the years. You make this show better when you come on. And, uh, again, thanks again. All the best, and we'll do it again soon. Hey, thanks, Greg. Good luck this weekend. All right, that's Steve Cleveland. Coming up next on Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel. Go to the gridiron. We'll talk with one of the newest coaches on the BYU coaching staff. New wide receivers coach Fessy Satake. The other coach Satake is coming up next. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, org, and the BYU Radio app. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, when the 2018 BYU football season kicks off at Arizona, there will be more than one Coach Satake involved with the game plan. Head coach Kalani Satake has been joined by his cousin Fessy on the Cougar coaching staff with the second Coach Satake coming to BYU from Weber State where he coordinated one of the very best offenses in the FCS for a Wildcat team that earned the program's highest ranking ever in an FCS quarterfinals appearance in 2017. Before his four-year coaching stint in Ogden, Fessy spent three years on current BYU coach Ed Lamb's staff at Southern Utah, where Fessy also starred as a T-Bird wide receiver. Indeed, when Fessy's SUU career concluded, he was second all-time in the T-Bird record book in total receptions, third in receiving yards, and third in touchdown receptions. He coached wideouts and coordinated the passing games at both SUU and Weber State before being elevated to OC status in Ogden, and now he is a Cougar and part of a new-look staff looking to get BYU back on track and back in the national college football conversation. It is my pleasure to have a conversation now here with Fessy Satake. Coach Satake, welcome into Studio 2. Welcome in Behind the Mic. Thank you, Greg. Great to be here. How does that feel, being a Cougar? It feels good. I've uh, been a fan growing up my whole life, obviously watching uh, Kalani firsthand and a bunch of the greats. I was just, I was just a huge fan, and so to, to be part of this staff and part of the program, is, it's surreal. Now, this isn't the first time uh, you and Kalani have been on the same team. Uh, back in 2004, you're a Hillcrest High School grad, and you start your college career at Southern Utah, where cousin Kalani was on the staff, and current BYU DC Elisa Tuiaki was a teammate. Correct, yeah. And 
current uh, quarterbacks coach, pass game coordinator Aaron Roderick was my coach and recruited me. So it's uh, it's everything's kind of come full circle, which has been pretty fun. So you guys are kind of back together now, aren't you? Yeah, it's a reunion. Yeah, it's kind of like the friends reunion on a football side. So over the years, had you always kind of stayed in touch the way guys do? Absolutely. Um, I've been they're just role models in in every way. Elisa as a player, um, someone who I looked up to and how to work as a player, and then Kalani and A-Rod as, as coaches, and Ed Lamb and Steve Clark has been a huge mentor of mine. So just all these guys have been amazing mentors and role models in my life, and so to be able to work side-by-side side with them is, is has been an amazing opportunity so far. So much of the coaching game, whether you're mentoring a player or amongst coaches themselves, is it's the relationship business, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's all it's all about relationships, and so I think it's crucial. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a bad rap in the coaching world where um, it, it can be like a meat market and, and you question people's motives because of, you know, are they trying to get this job? But I think I think there's something to be said just about genuine relationships and, and you know, how that those those transcend job opportunities. And if they end up working out where you're together, that's it's great. But all those guys I can truly say I've just looked up to and they've been great mentors. And we fortunately are just able to work together now. You had a great run in Ogden. We'll get back to it. But Cedar City and Southern Utah were such a big part of your life. After your freshman season at SUU, you went on a mission, Correct. came back, and you had options now. The coaching staff had changed, and you actually considered going to Utah, as I recall. What kept you in Cedar? So I was actually, yeah, I was enrolled at the University of Utah. Um, I had some practices with them, some player-run practices, and I was all ready to be a U um, because that whole staff had gone up to Utah on my mission. And so I uh, SU, I think, had lost like 18 straight when I was on my mission, and a lot of my, my friends who had not gone on missions had transferred up to the University of Utah. So it only made sense that that's where I targeted um, you know, to, to, to return to. Um, and then about three days before school started, Ed Lamb had given me a call, and I didn't know him, but I knew that he had played with Kalani and A-Rod and was, were, was close with them. At the time, I didn't know. Now I know that he had reached out to them, and they said that if they had uh, got a hold of me, that they would be able to get myself and three of my other best friends who left and came back with me on on, on, on uh, our missions. And uh, and he was right. Um, Ed Ed reached out to me and, and sold me. I was, I was set to... Uh, be put on scholarship after a semester. And so it was a really tough decision. At Utah. At Utah. So it was a tough decision for me to leave because I, I felt I could have worked my way in and all that stuff. But talking to to uh, Coach Lamb did it. It sold it for me. And, and people thought I was crazy at leaving <laughs> Utah. They actually won the Sugar Bowl that year, which made me really question my decision. But looking back, it was the best decision I made for me personally. Um, I had a family, a wife, and a kid come out of it. And an amazing experience um, as a player and, and was able to be a team captain and accomplish great things. And all of which could I have accomplished at Utah? I don't know, but it, but it happened down there at SU, and I, and I was able to get my first coaching gig there. Um, I doubt that would have happened at Utah. Just the, there's just the, that dynamic and that level, and it was just a great place for me to be a great setup to where Coach Lamb could hire me right on the spot, and it set me on this path. And I think that's a big reason of why I'm able to be here right now is I've had a kind of a smooth ride mm-hmm. 
all going back to being there at SU. So it's been a really cool thing to look back at it in hindsight. A lot of decisions I made I wasn't sure of why I was making them. They just felt right. And it's been cool to look back and kind of connect the dots. So as a return missionary, what about Ed Lamb's presentation and his approach to you was so persuasive? Well, fresh off a mission, he was smart. He used the spiritual side of things. I thought he was uh, LDS. Which, um, he, which he's not. He's not. I thought he was a strong member. He's talking to me and using all these these uh, church lingo. And, and I was like, man, this guy is solid. Uh, but he just told me he told me the right things, though. Nothing was fake about it as I look back. It was, it was all real. He told me to just pray about things and think about things and um, talked about um, use the approach of being able to turn a program around and being a reason of turning a program around where, whereas Utah was kind of already established and, um, you know, a lot of things going on there. And so I just, it all sounded right to me. And like I said, I, I, even when I made the decision, I still was like, man, is this the right decision? It just, it felt right. And every move I've made to this point has gone off of that feeling. And so he just was really smart about telling me that this is a decision I need to be prayerful about. Look at the big picture. And, and do I want to come be a part of a, a major turnaround, which it was. Yeah. And, and he, he sold me and he was right. So I mentioned some of the numbers you put up at SUU. How much fun was it to play that position for Ed? What was it like to play for Coach Lamb? Well, he, he's brutally honest. And one of the things he told me is that uh, he would have never recruited me as a freshman because he likes tall, long guys, uh, even at the receiver position. I told him, even 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 with what I did as a player, you wouldn't have. He's like, nope. But uh, but that's Coach Lamb. Deep down inside, though, I, I, I know that um, – um, we had a great relationship, and I think it worked out the right way. But it was really cool to play under him, to play under Steve Clark, who um, was able to put me in so many great situations to, to be successful and help the team out. And I, I appreciate he and just all those coaches that were involved with me as a player. Um, it, was, it was a really cool experience to have that type of an impact on a program. So you play for Ed at SUU. You were a star there at Southern Utah. You then coach at SUU. You then leave for Weber State. This goes FCS to FCS, in-state to in-state, big sky to big sky. How tough a move was that to make? Really tough. I knew I would have some some backlash, and there were a lot of question marks floating in the air in, in, in the Southern Utah community, for, for you know, rightfully so. But as, I had, as I've mentioned, it felt right. Um, there's some small things factored in where I, I had given – seven years of my life to that point to Southern Utah University. Four as a player, three as a coach. Exactly. Yeah. Four as a player, three as a coach. And, and um, even though there's a mission break in there, I just felt I'd given a lot and I needed to, to branch out. I needed to get uncomfortable essentially and get with a new a new coach and with new players and have to reteach things and you can get really comfortable at places which is fine but for me at my point in that career being young and needing to progress I felt that was the right move and and it wasn't so much that I felt SU had, had reached the ceiling and I wasn't happy there I just I needed to get out and learn from from different people and so when I saw coach Hill was the was the um, the new head coach Jay Hill? I, Jay Hill, and I knew that he was really close with Kalani, and I I knew a lot of people that had were connected to him. Um, after he had reached out and and offered me the job, um, it felt right, and and I think Steve Clark and at that time Justin Enna, who were our offensive and defensive coordinators, they had left. It kind of made my decision. Um, it kind of solidified that decision, and and I had opportunities to to kind of elevate my title in staying there at Southern Utah, but. None of that was more appealing than just the feeling I had that I got to make the move. So, You ultimately did elevate your title at Weber State. Such a great run you had in Ogden. Last couple of years, particularly impressive. Uh, deep in the playoffs this past season, top five ranking. And at this time, when you're kind of like peaking as a coach there, Kalani comes calling. <laughs> that was... Uh... <laughs> 
yeah, t- timing's <laughs> one of the hard things in this profession. Um, it made it really, really hard uh, when he, when he called, but. Um, Full circle again. It felt right. I had to do it. Now, there have been actually official school press releases at places you've been that call you and Kalani brothers. And while the two of you consider each other brothers, and you're as close as any brothers could be, technically you're cousins, as as cousins would be sons of fathers. Right. Correct. Um, Yes, we are officially cousins. And when you speak just to the side, a cultural side of of the Tongan culture, there's no translation for the word cousin. And so on one hand, the cultural side, we can consider each other brothers. But Kalani and I understand, and the reason we consider each other brothers goes way deeper than that. And it's just our life experiences and how we grew up and some of the things we've gone through that are very personal that have, have really made us call each other brothers aside from just the cultural aspect. Can you let let our audience in on the life experiences you each had that took the relationship from genealogical cousins yeah. to cultural brothers. Absolutely. So the biggest thing first off is the fir- the number one thing we have in common is neither of us had motherly figures present in in our homes. And when I say that, um Kalani as he's mentioned is is um he's his mom was his parents were divorced, so his mom physically was absent. My mom was physically present but was very very ill and had a rare form of of uh, Alzheimer's Huntington's under the dementia realm. They still don't know you know what it was but we but we both had fathers who were very um just active and busy and working trying to provide um and didn't have a lot of time we didn't have a mother at home that could really take on those motherly duties and so Kalani fortunately was of age where he was able to take me under his wing and be a parental figure you're um, separated by how many years the two of you 10 Okay. Yep, separated by 10 years. And so there's been times where he lived with us in our under our roof and I lived with them under their roof. Um, but he kind of took that role and, and just he would take me everywhere. I, I would go to all like a bunch of BYU practices. I would live at their house in the summer and go to camps and just um, he would just take me under his wing and everywhere they were, I, I was. When I say they, it's his other brother TJ who played here at yeah. BYU. Um, those were the two who I was I was always just t- attached to their hip and they just kind of took me under his wing. And then when my, my mother had passed away going into my senior year um, and I've, I've of shared, high school. Of high school. Yeah. Going into my senior year of high school and I shared this with Kalani is, is um, I don't remember anything really of the funeral. I don't remember the events of, of the funeral. I don't even remember what things were said. Song sung. I don't remember anything. I, I have one image and that was Kalani taking me to the side, giving me a hug and we were just embracing each other and crying. And he, he just told me, basically told me how proud my, my mom is of me and how she will continue to be proud. And that just left an impression on me that stronger than anyone ever has in relation to losing, you know, a mother in that experience. And as I reflect back on that, it made losing a parental figure a much sweeter experience. Whereas some people can look back and it's a dark time and it's very, you can be very bitter. It can, it can bring up bitter feelings. When I look back at that event of my losing my mom, I think of just her being how, just how proud of she is of me and will be of me in life because of Kalani creating that experience for me. And so that's a personal experience that I haven't, I haven't shared with a lot of people that, that kind of really cemented that relationship that we had with me just being a tag along, you know, my whole life and him taking me under the wing. It was that just that emotional experience of him um, making what could have been a really hard moment and confusing moment in my life. One that brought peace and understanding and serenity. 
so he becomes a true big brother in your life yeah. with a bit of a paternal feel, though, too, yes. because of his responsibility he had for you. It seems like he felt a responsibility to you. No question. We we can we call each other brothers, but there's no doubt in my mind. I look at him as that that parental figure. So, how do you? And this is kind of jumping forward. How do you uh, separate the professional from the personal with him? Um, that's a, that's a good question that I think a, a lot have asked. Um, we are we both know how to be professional and we both know how to be um, very personal when we need to be and i think it's it's one thing we've never talked about we just let it happen and we've only been we've only been uh, i've only been working under him and here for about six weeks now but um i've had zero issues with it i mean i sit in staff meeting and and he's a i'm a yes sir guy to him and i'm writing things down and i don't need to go in his office and and you know talk about things that don't need to be talked about. I just, we, we keep it professional here at the office. And if I want to, we want to crack jokes and stay up till the, till the crack of dawn, I'll do that. You know, at times it's necessary in the summers and the weekends when we have that time, but it's, it's actually been really, really easy. And I don't, I don't feel that connection at work. I feel, a, I feel a boss connection and, and then I feel the brotherly connection when we're removed from yeah. the office. So as you progressed as a player and then as a coach, how proud were you? Are you of the path Kalani was taking. He was a huge reason. Um, I'm here. I had zero intentions to be a football coach. Uh, I, I finished, um, my senior year at SEU and I was, had some, uh, internships set up with some agencies. I want to be a sports agent. I was going to go to law school and I was getting my MBA and I figured, you know what, I'll get my MBA paid for, um, uh, my master's paid for, and then, uh, I'll move on. And so I'll take this year and just coach football. Well, I'm I'm one like many coaches who just when you do something you, you do it as good as you can and about six months into the my graduate assistant year the receivers coach had left and that's when Coach Lamb provided me an opportunity to be the receivers coach um, and although it wasn't a full time role because of resources we had it was one where um, I was able to have my own room and coach my own position I didn't understand the dynamic dynamic of coaching at that time because I didn't aspire to be a coach so I leaned on Kalani heavily knowing that he had gone through the the ranks um, in a similar way of what I could have done. And, and um, so I leaned on him heavily and he's the one who told me law school, business field will always be there for you. Give this one year. And if you, if you like it, then you've got your foot in the door that people wait years for an opportunity. If you don't like it, then it will always be there. And, and just that advice and having him knowing what he's been through and in and, and the coaching world was huge and critical to, I think a lot of where I'm at today. So. You're still a very young guy. Uh, even younger when you were at Southern Utah and coaching at Weber State, what were the keys to credibility with your position groups and your offenses as someone who's relatively new to the game, the coaching game, that is? I think one of the biggest mistakes people make with young coaches is they say, just draw the line with a coach-player relationship. And there's the intentions are good, and I, I believe in that to a certain extent. But what a general statement like that does is it changes a lot of who a person is, and they feel that they just have to completely just – just go dictator um, drill sergeant all the way all the way right yeah. and 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 you lose players that way and so one thing i just felt was right as i heard all those voices of just drawing the line cuz it was a it was a red flag i i coached guys hard um i didn't i didn't have to get all close with them but I, but i but i was open and i was i was told them that i know i'm young and we played a lot of us played together and i'm now i'm coaching you i um, mean i just laid laid all the truths out there let those guys know that i might make mistakes but i'm your coach now um and i think just being honest and open like that created a sense of just 
you know, being real and true. And, and that was a very comfortable segue for me into that role as, as a coach. And as I've been getting older, it's, I've just come into my own now because I haven't felt like I've, I've had to change who I am. Go ahead. You, you never played here. Uh, you had never coached here, of course. You almost went to Utah, um, but you had interest in BYU as a kid growing up. You you knew of the program and and, and had ties to it, obviously through through Kalani and TJ. How, how long did it take for you to really get BYU into your blood? Um, I would say the Kalani's senior year. Um, I was a fan, like watching and and watching him play and all that stuff. But when he was done as a, as a senior, Lavelle's last year it kind of just all settled in like I've really got a, a real strong connection to BYU because I kind of lived it secondhand through him knowing you know our relationship well then that this that kind of faded away because I became a really big Utah fan when he was coaching at Utah and I realized that my tie to BYU wasn't so much Brigham Young University the institution it was the emotional experiences I had with someone who I really care about and so my connection was more just I'm loyal to Kalani, right? And then now that's one of the things I really look forward to is is I've been a fan of BYU for the last four years because Kalani's or Kalani's been here right, the last two years I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but now this is where I really I think I'm going to come connected to what BYU has to offer as an institution as a program um, and all the good that comes with it because I'm now immersed in it. Whereas before I thought I was connected to BYU, I was just connected to a lot of the players and specifically Kalani and TJ who were there. So I'm looking forward to going through that right now and really being connected and through and through BYU being uh, part of the, the university. And because you came in to the to the staff at a time when recruiting was like full speed, you now had a, had an immediate chance to not only learn quickly but then share quickly what you'd learned about this place. Yeah, absolutely, and that was that was a cool experience because I, I couldn't shed light on on BYU and what it can do for you, um, and getting real personal with guys. I, I could say it in a general sense, um, and so a lot of my recruiting approaches and conversations to these recruits that we had to sign, um, it was. I had to be real and I had to tell them that um, I've never lived it firsthand like a lot of the coaches have, but I, I had to express my genuine belief in what it can do and what I've seen in the short time here and what I saw as a byproduct just growing up with a bunch of these guys. And it was it was cool. I, I like that approach instead of trying to force, you know, what I really didn't know through experience. How pleased are you with what just got done recruiting wise? Very pleased under the circumstances and the time and the changes that happened. I th- I'm so fired up about the, the signing class we just had. I think there's a lot of stars, and, and there's a bright future for sure for BYU with these guys. Now, this wasn't going to be an X and O's conversation by any stretch, but uh, expectations for 2018 or for your position group or spring ball, what are the things that have you fired up right now? I, I tell the receivers um, we are going to be the toughest uh, wide receiver core in the country, and that's one thing to say. Um, and I tell them we're not just going to profess that. We're going to show that and how we work. And so one thing that I hope to see and that I hope um, BYU and, and Cougar Nation sees as a result is just a, a wide receiver group who loves football and who's just resilient and nasty. And they play physical and they play with passion um, and make plays. And, and uh, without getting into into the scheme and X's and O's of things, that's, that's my number one goal is to make sure that these guys play within um, the team um, but that they showcase passion and fire in every single thing that they do. How much of what you're going to be asking of your wideouts are the things that were asked of you and the things that you thought you did as a player? Um, 
a, a, a good amount of it. Um, a lot of it I just I just accumulated through, yeah, what I, what I was as a player. And there were things that were taught to me that I really appreciate and that I internalized and that I, I give to them. And there were things I just I thought I had as an individual um, that I'm hopefully able to bring out of these guys as individuals. A lot of these guys already possess some of the good qualities I had or, or were taught to me. And so a lot of it's a feel and just meeting with these guys individual, finding out kind of what they're all about, what makes them tick, and then just trying to bring out the best in all of them. So it's looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to spring ball, seeing you go to work, and then, of course, uh, the season opener will be here soon enough when we get to see what these guys put on the field uh, down in Tucson. It's been a pleasure chatting with you here in Studio 2. We'll, of course, see more of you as the uh, the spring and the summer goes on. Fessy, thanks for your time. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. All right, that's BYU wide receivers coach Fessy Sitake. More behind the mic is coming up. Former BYU Cougar and Pittsburgh Steeler Chris Hoke is next here on BYU Radio. Did you know that BYU has more than 80 alumni chapters worldwide? It's a way to connect with other alumni, help students in need, and help spread the influence of the Y all around the world. Most places have chapters where you live, and there are also chapters based on what your major was or even your profession. And chapters do great things, like helping provide financial aid for more than 400 BYU students this year. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. BYU alumni, connected for good. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Well, the day Lavelle Edwards coached his final game at BYU was also the day defensive lineman Chris Hoke played his final game for the Cougars. But the end of the 2000 season was not the end of Chris Hoke's career. Even when the 2001 NFL draft came and went without his name being called, it was not the end of Chris's football career. He signed with the Pittsburgh Steelers in 2001 as an undrafted free agent, made the roster, but didn't play a game for the Steelers in 2001, nor in 2002, nor in 2003. But he hung in there as a Steeler in Pittsburgh. In 2004, injury opened the door for Chris, and he started most of that season into the postseason, 14 games played. In 2005, 15 games played, and a Super Bowl ring for the Steelers for their win over Seattle. In 2006, 16 games. 2007, 16 games. 2008, 16 games. Another Super Bowl ring in a win over Arizona. In 2009, 16 more NFL games. 2010, 15 games played, and another Super Bowl berth. The 2011 season saw Chris's NFL career come to a close when a neck injury cut short his final season. Chris Hoke was an all-conference Cougar and an 11-season Pittsburgh Steeler. He is now a broadcast analyst for the Steelers and a motivational speaker and remains a beloved BYU ambassador. And my conversation with Chris is tonight's Catching Up with the Cougars, segment sponsored by BYU Alumni, connected for good. Find your chapter and get connected at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. Chris Hoke, welcome in Behind the Mic. Hey, Greg, you know what? I need to go out and raise some money so I can hire you away from BYU for being the voice of the Cougars, and you can follow me on the speaking trail and do all my introductions. I would be happy to do that, and I would that do it. That was amazing. I would do it free of charge. Just get me out to wherever you are, and I'll do it free of charge. Hey, thanks again, brother. Hey, you are, you are so closely associated with the East Coast and Pittsburgh, but, but you were originally, let's remember, a West Coast guy, right? Yep, absolutely. I was, I was born and raised in Southern California. Um, you know, went to Foothill High School, which is in Santa Ana, and that's where I was recruited by Ken Schmidt and Chris Pella, and I uh, loved, loved having them in my home with Coach Edwards, and it was a wonderful experience, that recruiting process, and that's when I ended up at BYU. 
Now, your BYU bio from back in the day stated that you were always a BYU fan or a BYU fan since you were a kid. Is that accurate? That's accurate. You know, I, I was a BYU fan. I remember in 1984 being at the Holiday Bowl when BYU beat Michigan and uh, being actually in the end zone where I believe Kelly Smith cut that touchdown pass to win the game. Um, and it was, it was amazing to be there. Um, you know, again, when recruiting came and schools were calling, and I know a lot of Cougar fans won't like to hear this, but Ron McBride put on the full-court press, and it was very tough to tell him I was going to BYU. Yeah, I was wondering, coming out of Foothiller in Santa Ana, what was the entire recruiting dynamic like? You mentioned Utah. How much competition did BYU have aside from, say, Coach Mack? Well, you know what? UCLA was, it was very intense. They came after me pretty hard. Uh, so I was in direct communication with Coach Donahue and, and, uh, and Coach Field. He was a coordinator. Um, you know how, what happens is, you know, as an LDS guy and, and had plans to go on a mission, as you start to express those uh, thoughts to these coaches, sometimes they, they back off, and that's what happened with UCLA and other Pac-10 you know, Pac schools back then, um, Colorado and, and, uh, and Washington. And so really the, the focus became with BYU, Utah, and actually Colorado State still hung on there. Colorado State was in the mix as well. Hmm. Now, you, you got a taste. Of, you signed with BYU, of course. You got a taste of Provo in 1994. You redshirted, right? Then went on your mission to, to Belgium, France? Yeah. You know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, when I got to BYU, I registered that year, and it was a wonderful experience practicing the team. I remember the first time that I suited up for a game was the Utah game that year up in Salt Lake, and I still remember like it was yesterday, uh, traveling with the team, getting all the warm-ups and, and the travel gear and staying at Little America up in Salt Lake, and I felt like I was royalty. <laughs> it was an unbelievable experience for an 18-year-old kid uh, to travel with the team and go up there and play up in Salt Lake and uh, – and be a part of that experience. I remember warming up. I remember the shoes. I still think I have the shoes that I wore that game up in my attic now. Um, but just uh, just one of the experiences I'll never forget. And then a couple of games after that, the season ends, of course, bowl, and then uh, you're off on a mission. You you always wanted to go, probably, but but was it tough after getting a taste of Division One football life to, to break away, or was it all kind of part of the plan and you were content to leave and, and pick it up when you got back? Well, I was always raised to serve a mission. That was always a goal. I, I, you know, I grew up singing you know, songs about serving a mission uh, and all those things. So that was always in, in the front of my mind. Um, the toughest time to decide to go on a mission was during the recruiting process because mm. that's when you know, UCLA was around and all these other Pac-10 schools. And, and I had really had to you know, stand on that ground, that foundation that I had kind of built for myself as a, as a, since a youngster. And so um, going on a mission after my first year at BYU wasn't hard. I remember having conversations with Coach Edwards about it and just a little worried about, you know, when I go and come back, um, will I still be able to play football at the same level that I was able to play before I left? And I, I remember having those conversations with Coach Edwards and him being very clear and, and, and very um, just uh, bold with me, talking about my mission and telling me that the Lord would bless me for serving a mission and that I'd be a much better football player when I came home if I went to serve a mission. Did you notice any differences uh, in your build or your makeup uh, from pre-mission to post-mission, or were the differences mostly uh, internal? Uh, I, I think internal. You know, your body matures. That's two years of maturity that you have, and you, know, you go from being a, a young man to an adult to a man in those two years. And so he, I, I didn't notice it per se, like, oh, my, look, my body, I'm more muscular now or I'm bigger. I didn't, I didn't grow. I didn't get any taller. But you just mature, and you become more of a man. And if you've ever seen a, a, a man on a football field go against a young man, it's a mismatch. I've seen that many times in training camp with the Steelers when you have a 
eleven year old eleven year vet go against a rookie. That's pure old man going strength going against a young man's strength, and the old man's strength usually wins most of the time. You got to play four consecutive seasons then at BYU after Richard's season and mission. When you look back on that time, 97 through 2000, as I mentioned, you got the final years of Lavelle Edwards at BYU, which is a pretty special time. What are the most special uh, times or teammates or memories and even uh, down, down to Lavelle that you had of that four-year four span? Well, those are memories I don't forget. I think one of the things is the friendships that I made. Uh, I still talk to a lot of the guys I played with till today. Hans Olsen is still one of my best friends. We talk and text regularly. Uh, we were very, very close. The relationship I had with Coach Edwards uh, was was very personal and important to me. Um, and, you know, another thing that's interesting was Coach Edwards' last year was 2000, and that was my last year. Um, if you remember, after that game, he went and coached the Hula Bowl, which was a senior bowl. Um, he was officer coordinator for that game, and I was the only Cougar who played in that hula bowl that year. So really, at the end of the day, I was the only Cougar to ever play in Coach Edwards' last coach game. It was kind of cool. So that was kind of an exciting experience being there with him and um, and being part of that. And uh, you know, just I think for me, the biggest one was that that, that Utah game in uh, in 1999 when uh, or what, 2000. Yeah. Um, when uh, Brandon Doman took us down the field, we won the game. And uh, that was a big game for me. I think that one stood out because it just encapsulated my whole career and uh, was going out a winner. You know, Lavelle had, um, in his entire career, he had one losing season, and it came in his second year back in 1973. So from 1974 all the way to the end, he'd never had another losing season, right? And you guys got to the, right. end, of the, you guys got to the end of that 2000 campaign, and you were 4-6 and six with two games to go. And I remember at the time there was a lot of thought about because everyone knew Lavelle was going out. This was going to be his last year. And they thought, well, he can't go out this way, right? And and so New Mexico at home, Utah on the road at 4-6. and six. You had to win both games to kind of keep that streak alive, if you will. And that wasn't the most important thing, but it was, it was something that was kind of talked about at the time. And then the New Mexico game becomes the stadium name game where, where President yep. Hinckley yep. shows up and, and, and he gets the stadium named in his honor. That becomes a landmark win for that reason. And then you have to follow it up the next week by going to Salt Lake City and doing it in kind of storybook fashion. So to get from 4-6 and six to 6-6, six and six, even though it wasn't a quote-unquote winning season, it was one of the most memorable seasons I ever, recall, I ever recall BYU football having. How about you? Yeah, I, I do too. I think it was very memorable for us. And we me- I remember talking about that, not wanting to send Coach Edwards out on a losing season in his last year and wanting to get those last two games. And, and I remember... That game there at uh, I was going to say Heinz Field at uh, Cougar Stadium, uh, where we played New Mexico and, Co- and uh, President Hinckley being there and Coach Edwards just being overwhelmed with emotion when President Hinckley announced that the stadium would be called Lavelle Edwards Stadium, and uh, winning that game and going to Utah and it was a battle and being behind and Brandon bringing us back down the field and winning that game, um, a very emotional final two weeks of my senior year uh to get Coach Edwards to go out without a losing season. But it was it was something that we definitely talked about. Very very, very exciting. Chris, uh you, you, you leave BYU and and you're an undrafted free agent in two thousand one by the Steelers. And to have played an entire NFL career with one team is a rare thing. To do it for 10-plus years is a rare thing. You know what the NFL lifespan is like. But then to do it with one franchise, how gratifying is it to you to have kind of hung in there, even from those early days when you weren't playing and weren't active, to then say you had a decade-plus career with one great organization in one great city in the NFL? 
It's very gratifying, Greg. So when I look at it, I came into the Steelers in 2000 um, as an undrafted free agent in 2001. And I'll tell you what, if you look at all the millions of dollars that are being thrown around the NFL, uh, my signing bonus back in 2001 was $2,500. <laughs> After taxes, I think took home $1,700 and change. And I literally had to fight my way onto that team. I got fist fights every single day in practice. Um, I had to scrap with these guys. I had to do everything I could to make the team. And uh, to be able to stay around for 11 years, to be able to have uh, two Super Bowl rings and play in three Super Bowls and be a part of some of those outstanding football teams, it meant a lot to me because it, it didn't come easy. And what, and what the great thing is, is for me was I always believed that the struggles that I had, the trials that I had, and the, the challenges to make those teams um, made the Super Bowl wins made the championship game wins even sweeter and feel even better because when you experience the low points, the high high points are even greater. You know how passionate Cougar Nation is, of course, and BYU fans are all around the world. Compare that to the passion of of Steeler Nation, just how intense it is and can get as a Pittsburgh Steeler, in a good way. Super intense. Steeler Nation, the fans know football. They they know football, and and not just men, but women – and, and, and a lot of times you might think, hey, how much do women know about football? Steeler Nation and women, they know football probably better than men. And, and they are more passionate than men. I, I talk to many women who, are, who come to these fantasy camps, and they'll come out in droves, hundreds and thousands of, of, of women who will come out and go to these fantasy camps out of training camp uh, in Latrobe, PA. And, uh, but these fans are very passionate about the team. They're very passionate about what we're doing. And they're, they're a little spoiled a little bit. It's kind of like Cougar fans because – um, they've won a lot of games, and they've won Super Bowls. They have more Super Bowls than any other team in the NFL at six Lombardi trophies. And so they're used to winning, and they're not used to losing. And so when we lose, they get, they get a little angry. They get a little, little vicious at times. You know, I, I, right now I, I did a post-game show on, on CBS local for the Steelers after every game. And yeah. uh, i got to do an hour phone calls where i got to take calls from these angry fans when we lose. <laughs> so I, I, I see firsthand how angry they are and how passionate they are when things don't go right, and, uh, but it's great. I would rather play for an organization and for a university who has, who has passionate fans than I would for fans who just don't care about their organization or their team. We're a couple of weeks, 10 days removed from the Super Bowl. Another team in Pennsylvania won it this year in remarkable fashion, and it's a pretty amazing thing what they did this year with a backup quarterback. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy the Eagles won. Listen, I... I had a lot of battles with the Patriots, a lot of battles with Tom Brady. Uh, lost to them a couple times in the AFC Championship game. Um, so I've had some tough battles with them. Was really um, We can go on and on about other things that we've been involved with them. But um, I was rooting for the Eagles all, all the whole time. And it's just, I think, mostly because we had six Lombardi trophies and they had five, and we, didn't want, we still wanted to be the lone team that had uh, six uh, Super Bowl championships. So that's the reason why I, I was rooting for the Eagles. But I, I just like that organization. I, I really do. I, I remember playing against them almost every off-season, uh, preseason, excuse me, as a young Steeler when Andy Reid was there. It seemed like we played against them many, many times. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's fun to watch them play well. And you've got to root for guys who really are, are they seem on the surface as good men. Uh, Nick Foles and the rest of the team, it's the way they carry themselves, the way they handle their business seem like humble, good men, and you want to root for those kind of guys. Chris, uh, you're, you are a motivational speaker among the things you do now and, and, and how well your story fits into that. 
uh, to that role right now because your life and your career, all about perseverance, right? It really is. You know, I think back to the time when I was in high school, and people were telling me I was too small, I wasn't big enough as a 60, 260-pound defensive lineman, and then I was able to get to BYU, and then being at BYU my senior year, and you know, being being talked about a little bit, and maybe I could draft, maybe not, and then we had our senior year, we were 6-6, six and six, and you know how that goes. When you don't do well, sometimes the, the players that are on there on the fringe, uh, their stock goes down a little bit. I wasn't drafted, and so I always had to persevere. Um, you know, first three years, like you mentioned in the, in the opening, um, of me not playing and having to fight through a lot of self-doubt, a, a lot of uh, disappointment, and, uh, you know, dealing with a lot of what you have to deal with as guys looking at you as a why this guy on the team. But I persevered, and uh, that's, again, like I, I, I talked about earlier about Dealing with those tr- struggles, dealing with that time of not playing and, 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 the, and the adversity that I dealt with made it even greater when I was able to be on the, f- uh, on the stadium floor when I was holding that Lombardi and celebrating with my teammates and with my family. It made those moments even greater. What is your family situation right now? So uh, we live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, just about 20 minutes north in a, a city called Franklin Park. I got five children, uh, three boys and two girls, uh, and uh, my oldest is 17. And uh, just loving, you know, loving it. My wife's doing great, and uh, you know, just uh, just uh, I'm a bishop out here in Pittsburgh right now. Mm-hmm. So I've been a bishop for about four years, and really enjoying that, loving that, and enjoying serving the people. So um, yeah, I'm pretty busy right now. How much do you keep up with uh, BYU football nowadays, and and the current situation with the coaching changes, and and what's to come? You know, I, I keep up quite a bit. You know, I still talk to people. Like I said, I can't. Olson and I are still very, very close, best friends. And so I'm able to talk with him and kind of get you know what's going on. And I try to listen to the radio through the Internet now, uh, local radio sometimes, and read local paper and, uh, and watch as many, as many games as I can. You know, it's tough to watch the games sometimes, to be honest, Greg. It's tough to watch the games when you're, you're losing the, the teams that aren't very good. And uh, the hope is and the, the prayer is that uh, Kalani writes the ship and gets uh, this team on the winning track. Well, that is the hope, and uh, we know you'll be uh, following things as we progress. And, Chris, I'm glad we caught up and, and find out what's going on in your life. And, and, again, a lot of people still look at you as one of us and, and keep, you in, uh, keep you in the Cougar family after all these years. We hope you feel the love and, and wish you all the best out there in Pittsburgh. Hey, Greg, I appreciate it. I still consider myself one of, uh, one, uh, a Cougar. And so uh, I'm glad that, uh, that my name's still remembered around there, and uh, I think uh, fondly on my days out there in Provo. Chris, great talking to you. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. All right, that is Chris Hoke, former BYU Cougar and Pittsburgh Steeler, joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All right, coming up next week on Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, we'll be talking with a former BYU hoopster Trent Playstead, former BYU player and coach, Terry Nashif as we get ready for the stretch run in college basketball. That's going to do it for Behind the Mic tonight. Our appreciation to Steve Cleveland, Coach Fessy Satake, and Chris Oak. This has been Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYURadio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.